Hi, I'm Gracie Sarkeesian, the Executive Director at the NYU Wasserman Center, and this is All in a Day's Work, the podcast we've created for you. All in a Day's Work will bring you episodes featuring members of the NYU community doing interesting work and navigating the professional world. We are excited to share their stories with you. We hope you enjoy this episode. This is Miriam Miller, your host for today's episode of All in a Day's Work. Today, I'm talking to Claudia Perez-Pelisa, NYU, CAS, and Wagner alumna and deals director at PwC. Claudia, it's wonderful to have you here today. Thank you so much, Miriam. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about the path that you've been on for the past few years and, and how everything got started. So can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do currently and how your studies at NYU led you down the path that you're on? Happy to share. So I am currently a director within our PwC deals practice, and my day-to-day consists in helping large financial services think through what and how they should either buy or sell and how they can transform their businesses to remain competitive in the marketplace. As an undergrad at NYU, I studied international relations. I was very interested in microfinance and thought I would go into sort of the nonprofit space. I realized as I was graduating that I really needed to understand the broader market and the broader financial markets to understand how to drive broader access to those markets. And so an opportunity came up coming out of undergrad to work at a startup called Capital IQ, which is a finance analytics firm. I dove headfirst into financial services, was then referred to the firm by a former NYU and fellow co-RA at Palladium at the time, and have been in consulting in various capacities for about a decade since. Now, in terms of how NYU prepared me, I think the fact that the curriculum was self-directed and international relations at NYU is very game theory oriented and very analytical and different from how it's studied at other leading institutions really helped me dive deeper into some of the quantitative aspects of my work today. Then when you look at my degree from Wagner and my MPA there, I also took some courses at NYU Stern. And that really, I think, helped me understand the broader management of larger institutions. A lot of the coursework was nonprofit oriented, but a lot of that was very transferable. And so I draw on a lot of that. But broadly, I think the perspective, the ability to juggle multiple different things and the overall culture of NYU really helped prepare me for what I do today. It sounds like your time at NYU definitely helped shape the person that you would become professionally in terms of learning so many transferable skills and and gaining some of that knowledge that informs the work that you do. And you've been at PwC for a number of years now. You've risen through the ranks up to being a director and in an industry that doesn't necessarily have a lot of female representation in leadership positions. What was your experience like both as a woman and as a Latinx woman working your way up the ladder to get to where you are today? You know, Miriam, I spent a lot of time thinking about that and particularly from the lens of paying it forward. So coming in, I never felt visibly excluded from any spaces, but obviously, you know, there's inherent biases, microaggressions that I think are part of every workplace. What I did is I decided to quickly orient myself around, you know, who are the women leaders that I saw, develop relationships with them and 
sort of try and learn from them, ask them really direct questions on, hey, how have you dealt with something like this? And, you know, what are some of the challenges you've faced? You know, I, I was very focused on building my ecosystem of people that I thought would have a similar perspective on some of the challenges. And I will say the partners at PwC Today grew up in a very different environment than I did at the firm. You know, there weren't a lot of Latinx professionals in positions of leadership that I could see in my group. And so I really branched out. I joined the Latinx Inclusion Network. I became one of the leaders of the Consulting Network for Women and really just made it a point to play an active role in having some difficult conversations around diversity. PwC published their first diversity transparency report that I think talks very openly to where, you know, our goals for diversity and where we still have to go. And to me, I think that's pretty exemplary and it demonstrates, you know, how far everyone has come, but how far we've come and the honest conversations that are happening. So there was never an overt obstacle but I think the challenge in a professional work environment is always the conversations you're not a part of. You know, it really the Hamilton quote comes up of, you know, being in the room where it happens. And I've really always tried to figure out how do I build allies, both with people who are diverse and less diverse, but trying to educate those allies to make sure that if I'm not in the room, that they can be in the room for myself and others who look like me. Well, I'm really glad to hear that it sounds like there's been a lot of progress in the industry in terms of being able to talk more about having difficult conversations and obviously trying to have better representation, especially at leadership levels. I think that's incredibly important. From your experience, what do you think people can be doing at different levels at an organization to foster more inclusive workspaces for everyone? There's a range of things. The tone at the top has to be very clear. You have to say, this is a priority please send any questions or if, if you feel in any way marginalized or threatened by the changes that are happening in the status quo and driving more, more power among historically underrepresented communities at a certain company, then please direct all inquiries to X office. Um, I say that and it's not really flippant, but Keep in mind that, you know, we're, we're trying to drive participation for highly qualified professionals, but we're trying to make sure that the top looks more diverse. So, you know, there's often a situation where people who have traditionally had easier access to those positions start to feel threatened and concerned, and that can be counterproductive. And so you might say diversity is important, but unless you have a pathway, and unless you manage everyone else, you know, you're going to have trouble seeing that shift over time. I think another thing is it's very important to have measurable outcomes. You know, we have specific targets around, you know, what should the partnership admissions class look like every year for each sector? What does the industry look like? How do we want to lead? How do we get there? Right. And it's not, I think, again, the messaging is we're not changing the bar. We're helping people reach that bar and we're helping to make sure that people have what they need to be successful. It's really important to deal with things like microaggressions and otherwise interactions head on and create safe spaces to have those conversations because it's those sort of everyday microaggressions or indignities that can cause people to disconnect and feel like they don't belong. And those cumulatively can pose an issue. The overtly racist things there are policies for, but it's these small 
cumulative factors that make people think, hmm, maybe I don't belong here. Maybe I should look elsewhere longer term. Those are the things that erode what we're trying to accomplish and that make people feel disconnected that we need to just really openly talk about and make sure we, we educate people. I think you make so many great points there, Claudia, about getting buy-in from leadership and having that be a, a driving force that shapes the culture and, and making sure that there really are measurable outcomes for what's trying to be achieved. I want to talk a little bit also about changes in, in your own life and, and how that's shaping your work now. So I know you have a, a baby at home, a toddler at home. So particularly as a woman in a high-powered role in a demanding industry like the one you're in, what were your expectations when you decided to become a parent and how has the reality so far compared to those expectations? You know, I expected it would be challenging and it has been challenging. Pre-pandemic, I was on the road 90% of the time. Um, Sophia is now 14 months old, right? But my expectation was post-mat leave, assuming there was no pandemic, I would be on the road probably for, you know, fewer days a week and just sort of manage it that way. Parenting during a pandemic has its pros and cons. Pros is you get to spend a lot more time with your child because we've been, you know, grounded. And so consultants haven't been taking over airports nationally and globally. The The cons is it has been difficult to manage, you know, childcare situation for the bulk of the pandemic. And, you know, there's definitely a feeling of isolation that sets in as a new parent that can be a real challenge. You know, our daytime routine is, you know, I, I wake up, I spend time with her in the morning. I take my calls. I try and protect my time and not take calls prior to 9 a.m. I poke my head out to see how she's doing. And then in the evening, I try and do bedtime, dinner time. And then I go back to work, you know, for another usually three, four hours after that. So the leadership team has been very understanding. But certainly pandemic working mom life is not without its challenges. And, you know, we just figure it out day by day. Some days I have more energy than others. Some weeks are tougher than others. And it's always a, you know, what's going to be the focus this week? Is it going to be Sophia a little bit more for part of the week? Or is it going to be this work deadline? And how do I make sure I have the right support system, which is always, you know, a recurring challenge. But I will say I'm just I'm happy that I've been able to at least be here and, and I can poke my head out during the day to spend a little bit of time with her in between calls. We'll be right back to our episode after this quick tip from Sarah Rosenthal. I get a lot of questions about cover letters. Do I really need to submit one? If they say it's optional, is it really necessary? And my favorite is, yeah, but is the employer even going to read it? The way I like to think about cover letters is not that it's an obligation, but that it's an opportunity. A strong cover letter can help an employer see how you could fit into their organizational needs. The things that you're going to have in a good cover letter are going to be your transferable skills, first and foremost. You want to make sure you've read through the job description to show that you have an understanding of the needs of the employer. I know that the cover letter is technically about you. But you need to remember your audience, which is the employer. What are their needs? How do they see this position being filled? Showing that you understand that, but also that you have the qualities that they're looking for in your skills and experience is going to really allow your cover letter to be more than just a repetition of your resume. 
Another thing that you're going to want to do is show that you understand the needs of the company beyond that specific position. Show them that you believe in the mission statement of the organization or that you understand how their department fits into the broader goals for their company or their industry. Lastly, you also want to make sure that you're showing a little bit of your communication style and your personality. You don't want it to be too casual. You want it to still be professional, but this is an opportunity for you to really show who you are beyond just the bullet points of your resume. And now, back to the episode. I want to zoom in a little bit on some of the challenges that you've mentioned during this pandemic. I know a huge part of your job, both with clients and within your own team, I imagine there's a lot of relationship building that happens. So I'm curious how you're finding ways to connect with people when you aren't able to get time with them in person and how do you sustain those relationships in a virtual space? Yeah, that that was honestly one of the things I was most nervous about coming back. I tried to flip it into a positive. You know, there's nothing quite like just grabbing dinner in whatever city you happen to be with, with your client and just grabbing a glass of wine, connecting. So what I ended up doing is just reaching out to clients, picking a time when I knew it would be less hectic. So I asked them, hey, what day of the week or what week's looking better for you? Picking maybe an afternoon slot and then just grabbing time and spending a lot of time just talking about personal things. You know, a lot of clients that I reached back out to are, you know, other professional women in the deal space or in the finance organizations of some of these, um, you know, larger financial institutions. Jumping straight into work can come off as even more transactional to me when it's not in person. There were definitely a couple of times where I just had a couple of social touch points with clients before I even got to the meat of, hey, here's something we should maybe talk about, or what do you think about this? The benefit was, previously I'd have to say, okay, when am I going to be in which city to then see if the client has time that week for us then to meet somewhere in person? Now it's just sort of fair game. You know, I just email out of the blue, we set up some time, and it's it's much easier actually to find time to connect more frequently. It's just not in person. On new relationships, I think it's so important trying to find something to relate with someone on or having something in the background. Like I've recently put, you know, a picture of my daughter, Sophia, you can see in the background, just things that make us seem a little more human rather than, you know, here's another person through the screen. From the team perspective, you know, I do miss being in a team room and just sort of being on my on my laptop, hearing the team communicate and sort of having an inherent sense for what's happening and where I might need to jump in based on what's being discussed. Now it's a lot more formal. So once a month, I organize a sort of quality time evening discussion. And we we use a sort of check-in wheel to ask people how they're doing. Coming back from, from Matt Leave, I spoke with another working parent. And I remember talking to him late night after we were working on some something and said, hey, how are you doing? And he said, you know, no one's asked me that in months. And so to me, that was just, okay, normally these topics would be covered in happy hour, but clearly everyone's just working on their own. So, you know, even if we only have a handful of people join, like let, let's create a space for people to talk about, but not just, you know, the answer not to be monosyllabic, yes, I'm okay, or things are fine, but to actually, let's talk about each aspect of your life and, you know, how, how are you actually doing? 
Yeah, I think that's such an important question. There was someone I was talking to recently and she said, you know, how are you doing? I said, oh, I'm fine. She said, okay, how are you actually doing? <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. There's there's a space that's open to actually say what's really going on. I think those are such important moments. One thing that I think a lot of people are are looking at too is grappling with these these ambiguous boundaries between work and also free time and, and family time that have come up during the pandemic. So have you found any creative ways to establish some sort of work-life balance or to manage the stress on your mental health during this time? I think you'll get a sense about me through this next comment, but I came out of my maternity leave a few days early and then went back in for a major client proposal that we were working on. Hindsight, would the team have been okay without me? Probably but it felt really important for me to be there. So I realized coming out of maternity leave, I really needed boundaries for myself and I need to respect those boundaries. So I started blocking off some time during the day and then I wasn't really very disciplined in protecting that time. So when people would book over, I would say, you know, okay, I guess I can do this. Um, It took me, you know, I would say three, four months to realize what the right level of time distribution was that would be sustainable for me. I block my calendar. So I do my best to not have any calls prior to 9am. So I can spend my mornings, you know, mindfully engaging with my child. I try and make sure I have at least 30 minutes, if not an hour for lunch, so that I can choose to either eat quietly, spend a little bit of time with her or catch up on other things, but it's not a given. The most important part is just declining things that overlap with your protected time. And then I have, you know, been very vocal about two hours in the evenings to spend with her to do the bedtime routine. But it's it's a real balance, you know, because when I prioritized time with my child, then time to exercise didn't happen or time for me isn't happening. And so I think the other major thing is being very disciplined about no weekend work unless it's absolutely necessary. And so I've told myself and my teams Look, I I may only review deliverables late in the evening. I don't expect you to be online or respond, but just know that because of my schedule, that's when I'm going to review things. And so you're going to get all the feedback you want. It'll just be in your inbox, you know, for you to review first thing in the morning. And I know also you are someone who provides a lot of mentorship to people who are earlier in their careers. What are some of the challenges that you're noticing for people over the last year or so who've been starting at new jobs? And how have you been finding ways to support people who are, are sort of these early career professionals, especially in the virtual space? So that's very much forefront of our minds. So with COVID, we had a new wave of MBA and undergrad campus hires. Some of the main challenges, as we would expect, is really building relationships with the team, getting a feel for for the team and being part of the culture of the team in a virtual setting can you know can be challenging. Unless unless someone creates that space, you may not have a broader sense for what's going on be, beyond what you're working on. You know, we can't sort of rely on new hires to get a feel for the broader context just based on osmosis of being in the room. So those are a couple of things that have come up. And, you know, there have been questions raised on, hey, how do we how do we help them better come up to speed? Obviously, a lot of learning in person is much easier With that in mind, things we've done is tell everyone who's new, just make sure you're not shy about asking questions. I know that's general advice, but it's specifically important because if you're working on something and you're running into a wall and you're sort of spinning your wheels a little bit and you don't know how to proceed, 
Don't spend too much time doing that. Just give it a shot and then reach out for help. Make sure that you set up daily touch points or weekly where it makes sense. But just use, you know, instant message or a video chat to resolve any questions you have. I've told everyone I work with to make sure we're doing everything we can to reach out to new hires and and make sure we get a sense for how they're doing and how they're feeling. And so it's very, you know, even more so than we would normally. Pre-COVID, we've made an effort to really reach out. It's not without its challenges. And I think we all just need to be a little bit more patient with ourselves, right? Um, I spend a lot of time coaching others who are new and said, you know, I'm a little frustrated of how long this is taking me to learn. And I said, you know what, it's it's fine. You know, the the upward trajectory is there and we're all figuring this out. So there's nothing to be, you know, really insecure about. But the relationship building has been a challenge. And what we're doing now is trying to, as things are starting to open up, trying to do targeted, smaller, informal group get-togethers to build to build those relationships. And with the new wave coming in where we may have some office openings, make sure that the people who joined over the last year are included in those and not overlooked, you know, just because they've been here for a year, but it's been just special circumstances. Well, Claudia, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story. It's been wonderful to talk with you. If you want to learn more about the services that are offered at the Wasserman Center, you can log onto our career portal, Handshake, through your NYU homepage. Today's episode was hosted by Miriam Miller with episode guest, Claudia Perez-Pelicer. We're produced by Miriam Miller and Lily Smith, edited by Lily Smith, and created with support from Nia Beresford, Daniel Crystal, Haley Garofalo, Diana Mendez, Joseph Mercadante, Carrie Pannoni, and Sarah Rosenthal. That's all in a day's work. Thanks for listening.